This season, we're going to do a series called Questioning Christmas. Um, And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Christmas story, we're going to walk through it, and we're going to pick out several questions that different characters ask at different points in the story. And I want to look at why do they ask those questions, how do we still ask those questions today in our own lives, and what can we learn from them and from the response to their questions uh, to help us in our faith as we're following Jesus today. And so today we're going to start with that in Luke chapter 1 with the question of doubt. The question of doubt. Um, One of our family traditions at our house for Christmas every year is to watch through a list of our favorite Christmas movies. Anybody else do the Christmas movie marathon around Christmas, right? So we watch through all these different Christmas movies that we love. And uh, certainly the top of that list these days is the all-new Christmas classic, Elf. Right? Anybody anybody else an Elf fan in here? And so you know in Elf that the... um, the, 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 we find that the problem, right? The, the magical uh, reindeer and the magical sleigh are having problems staying up in the air. And so Papa Elf uh, creates the Kringle 3000 turbine engine and attaches it to the bottom of the sleigh so that they can fly. But the reason that the reindeer and the sleigh are losing their magic, losing their flying power, is because more and more people are starting to, are stopping, how do I say this? Former people are stopping to believe in Santa, right? And as they're starting to doubt him and doubt his existence, it's stripping away this magic power that helps him fly. And so literally, their doubt is taking or removing his power. Now, thankfully, God is not like Santa. Can I get an amen? All right? There is no one and nothing and in no way, shape, or form can anyone steal, strip away, take away, or in any way does God lose his power, right? No matter how much we doubt, it doesn't diminish him in any way. In fact, it is his power precisely that gives us the hope that we need to overcome doubt when we start to feel that, when it starts to encroach on our hearts. His omnipotent power is what fuels that hope. And we're going to see that very clearly today in the Advent story, this kind of juxtaposition of hope and doubt and how we can marry those things together and hopefully come out in a better place with the Lord. And so today what I want to show you is this, that not one of my doubts is greater than the power of my God. Not one of my doubts, no matter what you're walking through, no matter what you're struggling with today, not one of your doubts is greater than the power of our God, and that is such a reassuring thing this morning. So let's see that here in the Christmas story. So I'm going to start, I'm going to do it this way, I'm a little bit different. I'm just going to walk through the whole story, kind of point out some things along the way, and then circle back at the end and give you three applications or three observations out of the story that I think will help us with doubt. So starting verse 5 with me of chapter 1. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, That should be a familiar line, because that's actually the same start to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, where it tells the story of Jesus' birth. So this isn't Jesus' birth, but it's around the same time, okay? And it says that there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So, got two main characters here, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's a priest of the division of Abijah, meaning he has traced his family line all the way back through the priestly lineage, so he's like a legit priest, okay? And then also his wife is a daughter of Aaron. Aaron was the original priest with Moses, so her line goes all the way back. 
So you have, a, you have a priest, not just a priest, but a priestly couple here, right? They both come from the lineage of Aaron and of the priest. So this would have been like double blessing, double favor of God as this special couple has been called into this priestly work, okay? So verse 6 says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So not only are they both from the priestly lineage, but it says right here that they were righteous and blameless. Now, just to make sure you understand, that, that doesn't mean that they were perfect. Okay, blameless doesn't mean that they were completely sinless. We know that, that the only person that's ever held that title is Jesus Christ. But it speaks to their devoutness, their their commitment to following God and walking in holiness and following his word. And so they were very much living for the Lord, okay? But it says they had no children. Elizabeth was barren, which would have been a bit of an oxymoron for the Jews, right? Because they understood or they believed, at least, that if you were favored by God, if you were blessed by God, if you were following God, that he would absolutely bless you with children. That was automatic. And so for them not to have any and yet be this righteous, blameless couple, like, didn't seem to make sense. And not only did they not have children, it says that they were advanced in years. So it had been this way for a while, right? They've been childless for a long time. And it doesn't look like anything's going to change, right? This is probably their lot in life at this point is what the assumption would be. So then we go to verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duties. Let me clarify that for a second, because that's a little historical piece there that makes a lot of sense in this story. When it says that his division was on duty, the priests, there were so many of them, that they were divided into 24 different divisions, right? And each division would serve in the temple in Jerusalem two weeks each. All right, so you're only in the temple serving for two weeks. This was one of those weeks for Zechariah and his division. So he's at the temple of God in Jerusalem serving. And it says in verse 9 that according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So now we've just taken it up another notch. Right? Not only is this week to be serving in the temple, which is always a super cool thing, but he was chosen by lot to go in and burn incense in the holy place. The place where God was. Right? Now there were approximately 18,000 priests at this point in time. All right? So they all had to take turns doing all the priestly duties and responsibilities. And, and this was one of the top ones, right? Like getting to go in to the holy place and burn the incense. Like this was one of the top responsibilities. And so they would cast lots to figure out whose turn it was. And you only got to do this like once in your lifetime if you were lucky. Some priests never got this, okay? And in this case, they would use lots because they believed that that's how God would, um, would show his will, Right? And so by casting lots, that meant that whoever got chosen through the lot was chosen by God. Like this was God's ordained man to go in and do it at this point in time. So Zechariah has now been chosen by God to go in and to burn incense in the holy place. This would have been the biggest spiritual moment of Zechariah's entire life. So look at verse 10. It says, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, 
for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah goes into the holy place to burn the incense, to do his part, and an angel shows up, okay? Again, once-in-a-lifetime experience, right? Like, you don't see angels every day. Like, this is a big, big deal. And the angel says, first of all, don't be afraid, all right? It's okay. I come with good news. This isn't a judgment call, right? Like, this is, this is a good thing. He says, your prayer has been heard. Now, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell in the English there what that, when you say prayer, okay, what are we talking about? In the Greek, the word prayer here is singular. I mean, the angel is saying that there's one specific prayer that God has heard and is going to answer. And so the question is, what prayer? (laughs) What prayer is he referring to? Well, it's probably the prayer that he just prayed at the altar, burning the incense. Like, this is the whole thing. He's going in there to be with the Lord and to worship, and he would have prayed something at the altar, burning that incense. Scripture doesn't tell us what he prayed exactly. It kind of implies that maybe he prayed for a son, right? Like, they're childless. They, they, hey, God, will you give us, will you give us a son? But that's probably unlikely because that's kind of a, a personally driven prayer request. It's kind of a, a selfish prayer request, if you will. I'm, not that it's, like, wrong to want a kid, but this was, again, his biggest spiritual moment as a priest before God and the Jewish priests in these days, they would not have offered a personal prayer in that moment. Right? They would have offered a prayer for the people, for the nation, in this corporate moment of worship. And so most likely, Zechariah prayed what all the priests and all the Israelites had been praying repeatedly for generations, that God would come and deliver his people. The Messiah would come and free them from oppression and set them up as the nation that they were chosen to be by God. He was praying that, that Messiah would come and set all things right. And the, answer, and the angel says, this prayer has been heard. That in other words, this prayer is going to be answered. And oh yeah, by the, by the way, bonus, um, you're having a baby boy. And his name is John. And then he goes on to talk about John. Listen to this description. Like, if this was an angel telling you about your coming kid, like, this would put you on absolutely cloud nine, right? Like, he says, he will bring joy and gladness to you. Well, no doubt, right? Like, we've been waiting a long time for this. And not just you, though, that many will rejoice, right? He's prophesying about what's going to happen at the child's birth. And he goes on, he says, that he will be great before the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible doesn't say that about very many people especially in the New Testament, I think John might be the only one filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And he will turn many to the Lord in the power of Elijah, the great prophet. And he'll prepare for the coming of the Lord, of the Messiah. Wow, right? Now, for a priest like Zechariah, who's well-versed in the scriptures, who's been doing this for a lot of years, this would have immediately brought to mind an Old Testament prophecy 
from the book of Malachi. And in Malachi, these are the very last words that God spoke to his people before 400 years of silence to this moment when God speaks again through this angel. So they're, they're like bookends to this long period of God's absence. And the angel quotes what Malachi said in Malachi 3, 1 and 4. It says, 3, 1, Behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. See, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to send a messenger before the Messiah comes. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so what this angel is telling Zechariah is like, listen, deliverance is coming. Messiah is coming, but it's going to start with your son. Right? Like mind blown. Like Zechariah would have been completely blown away by this. So then look at verse 18. So Zechariah said to the angel, he's going to say something back now. Like when you're going to talk back to an angel, you better be careful, right, like what you're about to say. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? There's the question. That's the question we're looking at today. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So first of all, he says to the angel, he's like, how shall I know this? Like I hear you but I'm not buying it, right? Like, I, I just don't I, don't, I don't think I believe it. He's doubting what the angel says. He says, because I'm old, and my wife, she's advanced in years. Good play, Zachariah, right? Like, there's men, there's something to learn right there, okay? Like, careful with how he, how he said that. And so the angel answers him, and he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this. So it's, it's kind of this play on words. Zechariah's like, I'm old. And Gabriel's like, I know, I'm Gabriel. And I stand in God's presence, and I'm bringing you good news from the mouth of God. How are you dare questioning me right now? How are you doubting this? Like, who do you think you are? Look at verse 20. The angel goes on. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Like, he's taking a long time in there. Like, what's going on? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So the angel says, fine. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're going to be mute. No words until the baby comes. Silence. Unable to speak. You're going to know 
God's power firsthand. Because he's going to take your voice away. And I just have to believe that there's no doubt in those months that went by of his silence, of his, in that quietness of his life, that he had plenty of time to ponder the power of God. Now skip down a little bit further in, in chapter 1. We're going to get the end of the story here. Look at verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So, so the time has come for her to give birth, right? The baby's coming. So that means nine months have went by. At least nine months of Zechariah being mute and learning and seeing the power of God at work, both in his own voice and in his wife's pregnancy. It was a miracle of God. And she bore a son and Everyone rejoiced, fulfilling the prophecy that the angel had said. And then in verse 59, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So the whole town comes out, they're going to the big ceremony. They're like, let's call him Zechariah. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Like, woman, you're crazy. Like, what, what are you talking about, John? So they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, because he still can't talk, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. See, Zechariah wasn't doubting anymore. He knew full well the power of God at this point in his life, and he said, God said his name is John, his name is John. says, now the time for Elizabeth, I'm sorry, I already read that part, 64, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors and all these things were talked about through all of the hill country of Judea, like this was a huge deal. And they all heard them and laid up in their hearts saying, what then will, be the, will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the moment that Zechariah doubles down on the power of God and said his name is John, his tongue is loosed, his mouth is opened, he can speak, and the first thing that he does is bless God. He experiences another miracle, another power that his voice comes back, and he'd been waiting months for this moment, no doubt thinking about exactly what he would say to the Lord when his voice finally returned, and he uses that opportunity to bless and to praise and to worship God. His doubt had been replaced with belief. And all the people said, what will this child be? The hand of the Lord is upon him. So it wasn't just Zechariah that saw the power of God. All the people saw the power of God. And they praised and they blessed and they worshiped the Lord. As a result. So that's the story. So what can we learn from Zechariah's question of doubt? What can we learn from this? Why did God put this in here for us to learn? Point number two, first thing is this. Holy living does not insulate my heart from doubt. Holy living does not insulate my heart from doubt. 
So again, think about this. Zechariah was a priest, right? Elizabeth was from the line of the original priest, Aaron. They were strong spiritual leaders, strong spiritual couple. They knew God. They knew his word, probably better than most people. It says that they were righteous and blameless, walking in holiness, honoring God with their lives. You know, they, again, they, they were not bitter that they were childless, right? Like they've been childless for a lot of years, but they don't see to be bitter about it. They're not shaking an angry fist at God, like, how dare you not give us this kid or... They, they, they didn't walk away from their faith when, when God didn't give them what they wanted. They were strong, healthy, sincere believers. And then they come to the biggest moment of Zechariah's spiritual life and leadership. He's serving at the temple. God chooses him to go in by lot to the holy place. No doubt when he entered the holy place and he's going to do this, like this was... He, he had to be completely focused on the Lord, right? Like, how can you be thinking about anything else at that moment? I mean, he is, he is zoned in. And yet, when the angel came, he still doubted. He still questioned God instead of believing God, which I think is a very, very important reminder to all of us that none of us are immune from the sin of pride and doubt. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved or how long you've, or how dedicated you are or how much you serve at church or how much money you give in the offering or what your position or title is. None of us are immune from the sin of pride and doubt. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's us. That's all of us. Our hearts are sick with sin. That's why we need Jesus. Right? That's why we need the gospel. So how do we guard against doubt even when we're seeking to be faithful and follow the Lord? Right? Even if we're putting our best forward to follow Jesus and to live by his word, like how do we still guard our hearts from not falling into this trap? Well, I think it's this. I think you, we have to continue to approach the Lord in humility, not arrogance. See, there's something I've learned being in church a long time, growing up in church, is that sometimes holiness can make us prideful. Right? We start walking with the Lord. We start following the Word. We're, we're not who we used to be, right? We don't do the things we used to do, which is great. Praise the Lord for that change. But none of that's because of us. Right? That's because of Jesus Christ. That's because of the Holy Spirit in us working and moving and changing us. And the moment we start thinking that our holiness, that our righteousness, that our, our lives are on our own strength and our own ability, that pride starts to seek in. And it sets us up for failure. We have to be on guard against pride. And we have to confess regularly our need for God. We have to keep the right perspective that he is God and I am not. Yes, he is our father. He is our friend. He is our savior. All of that. But he is also the sovereign, almighty God who is in control of everything. Not me. I don't get to call the shots. We need to have that humility. I think, you know, if, if you're 
if you're a boss of any kind or a leader on a team or if you're if you're a parent especially a, a parent of a teenager you know what it like you know what it's like to be questioned right to have your your authority challenged when when someone's when you're supposed to be leading someone when you're supposed to be having authority over them and they challenge you they doubt your judgment they doubt your motives they challenge your they question your decisions and in that moment we're like are you serious right now <laughs> like, like, who do you think you are to, to question me on this? Like, do you really think you have the understanding or the experience or the whatever it is to, to challenge me on this? Like, now, the problem with that analogy is it's not perfect because we're not perfect, right? Sometimes we actually do make mistakes and people can challenge us, but that actually makes the, the analogy even more powerful because although we make mistakes, God never does, so in no way, shape, or form do we ever have the right or the ability or the understanding or the wisdom to challenge or doubt or question the power and the purposes of God. He is God. I am not. So I need humility. So the first thing is I need humility, not just holiness, to guard my heart against doubting. If we really want to do this right, we need humility, not just holiness, to guard our hearts against the doubt of God. That's number, that's first application. Second one, look at point number three. Hope deferred can infect my heart with doubt. Hope deferred can infect my heart with doubt. I think we see this here with Zechariah and Elizabeth a little bit. So again, remember, they've been barren now. They have been without children for many, many years. And family and children was one of the highest values in Israelite culture, right? Like, they, like if you were going to be a good Israelite family, you had to have lots of kids and continue to spread the, 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 uh, the line of God that way, the people of God, right? And if you didn't have children, there was something wrong with you, right? Like, like you were under punishment of God or something like, this is the way they thought about it. I'm not saying that's true today. I'm just saying this is the way they thought about it. Okay? And so these people, despite their best efforts to follow God, suffered for years without a child. And in the early years, my guess is that they probably prayed incessantly for God to give them a child. And they prayed it over and over, begging him to show up, begging for help that never came. And eventually those prayers faded. And they stopped hoping. They stopped believing that things could be different. And they doubted that their life could ever be that. This is just, this is just what we get. And then the angel shows up. And he says to Zechariah, he says, your prayer has been heard. Okay, again, what prayer, which one? The one he just prayed at the altar, the one for the deliverance of Israel, the prayer that the Israelites have been praying for a, a, a thousand years or more, waiting for Messiah to come, the prayer that they've been praying for the last 400 years of silence, asking God to show up, asking God to move again. He, Zechariah, as a priest, he has prayed this prayer hundreds of times, and yet nothing's ever happened. So I just wonder, like, I think he still wanted it. I'm sure he still wanted the Messiah to come. 
He still said the words. He still prayed the prayer. But did he really believe it was possible? Did he really believe that God would actually come again? And he would see it in his lifetime. In his, like, there's something about after you pray a prayer over and over and over again, there can be a, thing, there can be a point where our heart starts to doubt. That we start to lose that belief when the thing that we're hoping for just never seems to come. Was, was Zechariah just going through the motions again? Just praying the prayer to pray the prayer, but secretly sitting under a cloud of doubt? Guys, God was going to answer that prayer, but not just that prayer. He's going to answer two prayers at the same time. First of all, he said, remember, remember that long lost prayer for a son? The one you stopped praying several years back? First, I'm going to answer that one. And not just any son, but I'm going to give you a son of joy and gladness. And he will be great before God. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is going to be a special son with a special mission. And I'm going to answer the, the tired prayer that you keep praying, but you really stop believing. The prayer for deliverance. The Messiah is going to come. And he's going to rescue his people but first your son is going to be his forerunner he's going to be the one that sets the way according to malachi and zechariah in that moment i think he was just i think he was thinking like could could this be true like i i can't quite bring my heart to hope for these things again because i've done it for so long and they've never come true and the prayer's never been answered like could it really be true this time or are these hopeless prayers finally coming true? He just couldn't believe it. He just couldn't bring his heart to believe it again. And so he doubted. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. What that means is hope deferred leads to a heart that is sick with unbelief. Right? It, it's, it's when my heart gets so focused on the one thing that I want but don't have. And when I get so focused on that one thing that I hope for, that I, I desire, but I don't have, then it starts to make me doubt my hope in everything else. I get tunnel vision on this one thing that God hasn't done, that he's not doing, that I've been asking for, and God, this isn't happening. And because this isn't happening, I then start to doubt him and his goodness and his power in everything in my life. But the verse goes on, it says, but a desire fulfilled gives life, right? God fulfills all of our desires when they are set on him. That's the key. When we focus not just on what we want but don't have, but rather when we focus on him and all that we have in him and all that he has given and all the way that he blesses and, and leads and cares for us that's when we find hope and life again. When our desires are in the right place. 
this is really at the heart of the gospel. I think sometimes we miss this, por- this part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us in our natural state are hopeless. We are hopeless in our sin. We are headed for death. We are headed for hell. We have no way of making it right. We have no way of getting ourselves out of that. We are hopeless in our sin. And so God came to make a way for us to find hope again. He sent his son to be born as a baby in a manger to a virgin with no name and no reputation. And he came and he lived a humble and yet sinless life. And then he went to the cross and he gave that life to pay for the sins of all who would believe in him. He stood in our place and he took the wrath and the death that we deserved. He went to the cross as our substitute. And he died in our place and then he was buried and three days later he rose back to life to prove that he was God and to offer us forgiveness. Like if you will just come and if you will believe, don't doubt, if you will believe, then you will be saved and I will fill your life with hope. Hope for a brighter day. Hope for eternal life with God. Hope, hope, hope. You see, I don't just need Jesus. I desire Jesus because of all that he has done for me. Don't don't miss that part of the gospel. It's not just that you need him. It's that whenever you finally see him for who he truly is, your heart is changed and you are overwhelmed with a desire for who Jesus is. And you want him more than you want anything. A desire for God is fulfilled in his presence and it fuels my heart with belief for all that he can do. And that's what drives us in life. That's what drives us at Christmas. Let me just ask you this morning, where is your hope deferred this Christmas? What's the thing that you've been hoping for, praying for, asking for for a long time and it hasn't come yet and your hope is just feeling gone. And whatever that is for you, how can you place your desire in God instead of whatever it is that's deferred? How can you transfer that mindset, that heart, those prayers, not just for that thing that you want? And it may be a good thing. I'm not saying it's sinful to want that. But you have to want him more. That's where your desire has to be first. I was thinking about Christmas a lot this week. You know, our our family loves Christmas. We love eating good food and giving presents and being with family and all that kind of stuff. And, And another tradition that we have is that we make Christmas wish lists in our family, right? And not just the kids, like the parents do it and the grandparents do it. Everybody does it. And then we just circle the lists all around to the whole family. And not because we're like demanding, like, this is what you have to get me. Okay, it's not like that. But it's, we want to give gifts that people actually will benefit from, that they desire, that they think that they like, right? And so this is a great way to just make sure we're getting each other gifts that are really, um, you know, things that we're going to love. But in that process of doing that throughout the years, we've had to teach our children, um, just because you put it on the list doesn't mean that you necessarily get it. Okay, 
Like the list is a suggestion list. It is not a requirement list, okay? And so um, not everything that makes the list makes the, the tree, okay? So we had, to, we had to teach them this. But part of that is like, listen, you can put stuff on the list, but whatever you get, we're going to be thankful for that. We're going to be happy about that because the point isn't the gift. The point is the person and the heart and the love that they have for you that they wanted to give you a gift. You know, as believers, sometimes we get so focused, we get too focused on the gifts and the blessings that we desire from God. And then when they don't come when we want or how we want, we get upset. We get disappointed. We even start to doubt God and we start to doubt his goodness because, like, God, I've asked you for this and it's not here. But when that happens... The problem isn't God. The problem isn't his goodness or his power. The problem is our heart. That we have put our desire and our hope in the wrong things. That we have hoped more for the gift instead of the giver. That's where doubt comes in. That's where it starts to fill our hearts. We have to refocus our hearts on the giver of hope, not just the things that we hope to get from him. Hoping God will never be deferred because he is always with us. If you put your hope in him, you will never be put down, never be let down. I need to hope in the giver more than the gifts to guard my heart against doubting God. Put my hope in the giver more than the gifts to guard my heart against doubting God. So first it starts with humility. Secondly, it starts with putting my hope in the right place. And then thirdly, last thing today, last point, the hand of God transforms my doubt into blessing. Again, Zechariah was mute for months. Can, can you imagine can you imagine being mute for months? Some of you are like, I got somebody God can mute for months. Like, I, I'll, I'll put a name in the hat. Like, can I, can I get in on that? Meanwhile, he watched his barren, advanced in years wife grow pregnant and give birth to the son that God promised. He had a front row seat to the power of God at work. So when the time came to name him, he was clear and emphatic. His name is John. No more doubt. Right? Like he is all in. And immediately God opened his mouth and Zechariah's first response was to bless God. He had months to ponder what he would say, how he would respond, what was going to come. And he blessed the Lord. Now was the time. His hope had been restored, his voice had been restored, and he went from wavering to worship. And not just him. It says all the people saw, all the people heard, and they too said, man, look at God's power. And they went from wavering to worship, from doubting that the chief was going to have a son, or doubting all this stuff about what happened to Zechariah, and now, no, we're in, man. 
We have seen, we have experienced God's power. Because once you experience the power of God, your life becomes a testimony and a witness to everybody else. Once you have the power of God, that changes you. There's no room for doubt when God's power is in the room. That's what happened with Zechariah. That's what happened with these people. When I testify of God's power in my life, I become a witness of hope to others and to my own heart. This is the key. This is the whole point of Christmas for Christians. Not just that I have hope, but I get to be a testimony and a witness to the power of God and the hope that it brings to everyone else around me. You have more opportunity and more chances right now to testify of the power of God in your life to everyone around you than you do most of the year. All your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, all of them who, that, who don't go to church, who could care less about God, who could care less about Jesus, right now they're thinking about Christmas. In whatever realm they celebrate, they're thinking about it. And this is your chance, this is your opportunity to testify to the power of God in your life and the hope that Jesus brings at Christmas. Not one of my doubts is greater than the power of my God. Do you believe that? Doubt in God rises up when my heart rightfully focused on me and what God hasn't done for me. But hope, hope grows from a humble heart and a desire for God more than the things of this world. And so as we start to enter this Christmas season this year, I want us to do this with, with humble and grateful hearts before the Lord. Like, take a fresh opportunity in prayer to humble yourself and to, to thank the Lord for all that he is and all that he has done and, and let that be what rushes over you and your heart to fill you again this Christmas that you can then spread his hope this Advent season. Will you stand with me? We're going to pray. We're going to respond in song. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are great. You are the mighty God who does wondrous things in us and through us. And so today, Lord, we come and Lord, we just humbly thank you for the promise of the Messiah, for sending your own Son to deliver us. Lord, as we celebrate his birth again this year, Lord, turn our minds, turn our heart to remember your steadfast love, your sovereign power over all things. God, may we never doubt that. Lord, fill us with hope those with hope to believe that you are always working for good, that we can trust in you no matter what comes our way. Lord, may the power of the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ replace all of our doubts with faith in you. God, thank you for coming for us.
your altars in Christ's name.